Well, the title of the message this morning is Spiritual Warfare, Battlefield Prayer. Again, our text is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And because we need to get underway this morning, we're going to go ahead and put the train on the tracks. We're going to go ahead and take the aircraft off. I don't have a lengthy introduction for you this morning. And so as we turn our attention to our text, and as we do most Sunday mornings, let me encourage you to stand with us in reverence for God's Word. We'll look at the entire text again in its context as we have for the last seven weeks. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 through 20, pins the following words. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here's our text for this morning. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, that I might proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. You may be seated. Paul's giving great emphasis this morning to the Christian's need for prayer. I think Paul wants to show us that the Christian must not only be clothed in God's armor. We said that's not a suggestion. Paul's Paul's not suggesting that we take up the full armor of God. It is a divine command. Take it up. Put it on. Do it now. Don't delay. But Paul is also telling us this morning in our text that to do so must be done in prayer, with prayer. We're to put on each piece of the armor prayerfully. Having put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, we are to do those things. Yet if we fail to be prayerful, we have missed it. We have missed it. You ask yourself, well, what is the connection between prayer and the armor? I understand how how the armor, or I'm growing in an understanding of how the armor fits together and about how each piece really in in some way is a resemblance of Christ and what he's done for us. And so we, we put on Christ. What Paul does is he delineates for us or he enumerates uh, seven uh, unique and specific ways that we do that. But there's a connection between prayer and the armor. Paul is calling all Christians in our text this morning to be prayer warriors. You see, friends, prayer is not a gift given to a segment of elite Christians. It is a gift given to all Christians without exception, and we are to exercise it at all times. It's important to know that Paul's not switching gears here in our text. He's, he hasn't been teaching about uh, the, the Christian's armor, and now he switches gears to prayer. Paul moves seamless between his, his enumeration of the Christian's armor and his, and his teaching here on prayer. He's not changing gears. Paul's making the connection between the Christian's successfulness in battle and the necessity of prayer. Close your eyes for just a moment. I want you to get this picture in your mind. 
The militant army of God is standing firm, shoulder to shoulder. As the enemy approaches, a thousand swords ring from their scabbards in dreadful symphony. The warriors stand there motionless, breathing heavy. And the Christian soldier does the most amazing thing. He falls to his knees in deep and profound prayer. To be sure, there will be action. He will rise and steel will flash. But all will be done in prayer. For prayer is primary. Open your eyes. Look at that picture of the militant army of God walking to the front line of the battle that we're engaged in. Remember, we're not engaged in a battle against flesh and blood. We're engaged in a a very real battle with the principalities and the darkness of this world. And we'll stand up, and we will wield our sword like we learned last week. Steel will flash, make no mistake, but all must be done in prayer. Prayer is foundational to the deployment of the Christian's other weapons. Here's what I mean by that. What will hold the belt of truth securely fastened around your waist, if not prayer? What will secure the breastplate of righteousness and protect our hearts, if not prayer? What will give effectiveness to the gospel shoes of peace, if not prayer? What flaming arrows will the shield of faith stop, if not by prayer? What hope will the helmet of salvation render to us, if not by prayer? And what precision will we we be able to wield the sword of the Spirit with, if not by prayer? Paul's not switching gears here. Paul's continuing right on. Samuel Chadwick once noted, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies. He fears nothing from our prayerless work. He fears nothing from our prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And In light of that truth, I think Paul gives us five specific principles for battlefield prayer in our text for this morning. If you're taking notes, number one in your outline is this, pray continually. Pray continually. Look at everything that appears before the first comma probably in your Bible. That's verse 18a. Paul pins these words, praying at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit, Paul says. You see, we don't often need to be encouraged to pray when, when, when everything is, is smooth sailing and everything is calm in the Christian life. But what about when the seas are lapping over the side and spilling into our storm-tossed lives? What about then? That's when the rubber meets the road, friends. As a matter of fact, I would say that's when your theology becomes evident. We can say high and lofty things about who God is and what He's done and how He's working in our lives, but when some trial comes, that's when your theology will come spilling out. That's when my theology will come spilling out. We don't need to be encouraged to pray when the seas are lapping over the side of our storm-tossed lives. Trials and difficulties oftentimes have a way of bringing us to our knees, but do we pray as fervently when the seas of life are calm? Do we pray with the same tenacity? Do we pray as as fervently as often when the seas of life seem to be calm? 
Paul's exhorting us to pray on all occasions, in all circumstances. In other words, there should be no situations in life from which prayer is absent. I mean, Solomon said this, you probably have the, the verse memorized. Proverbs 3, verse 6, Solomon says, In all your ways, finish the sentence, acknowledge him. In all your ways, in all circumstances. Prayer is to be a natural and consistent part of our lives. It's not to be regulated to special seasons or special days or special needs only. We are to pray, Christians, listen to this, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, when we rise and when we retire, when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're discouraged, when we're confused, when we're hurting, when we're fearful, when we're uncertain, when we're thankful, and when we're struggling to be so when we have plenty and when we're in need, when we are sick and when we are healthy, when we have the words and when we're struggling to put words together. We are to pray alone, in private, in public, silent, with words, sitting, standing, kneeling, or even lying prostrate. We're to pray extemporaneous prayers. That's off the cuff. We're to pray written prayers. We do that sometimes here from the pulpit. We're to pray prayers that we see in the Bible. In other words, we are to be people of prayer. Friends, bathe your lives. And this is challenging for me. I'm in the crosshairs here. I don't profess to have a a fruitful, all the time, prayer life. And I'm convicted and I'm challenged and I want to be growing and changing. We need to hold each other accountable here, by the way. But bathe your life in prayer. Bathe Bathe your family in prayer. Your friendships, your marriage, your children, your decisions, your church, the leadership of your church, and every other concern that you may have, bathe it in prayer. And I would even encourage you this. Keep a journal, if you don't already. Keep a journal of specific prayer requests and write down when you request them and when and how God answers. God always answers prayer, by the way, friends. He doesn't always say yes Sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says not right now. But God always answers his children. Our our prayers never hit a glass ceiling. He hears us. When Paul says praying at all times here, look at the text. He says praying at all times in the Spirit. Told us to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. What does he mean? That we, we need to know what he means, right? Because we want to obey the scriptures. What does Paul mean when he says pray at all times? Well, I don't think he means that we are to be praying every moment of every day without exception. Remember Jesus told the Pharisees, um, even in Matthew chapter 6, he said, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. And so when, when Paul encourages us here in our text to be praying at all times, we're, 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 not, just, we're not, not just trying to be wordy here. That's not what Paul's calling us to. Warren Wearsby notes that Paul is exhorting us here to always be in communication with the Lord or to always be keeping the receiver, so to speak, off the hook. Think about a telephone. Most of our telephones don't have a hook anymore. But what Paul is encouraging us to here is to keep the telephone off the hook. It doesn't mean that we're, that we're speaking every single moment of every day. But it does mean that we are to be in continual communion with the Lord. 
doesn't mean to speak without ceasing, but it means that you're always on the line. You're always on the line. You see, prayer is the articulation of words, but it's also a posture of the heart. Think about that for a second. Tumble that around in your mind. Prayer is the articulation of words, but it is also a posture of the heart. We should begin to pray before we kneel down, and we should not cease to pray when we rise up, but always be on the line. I'll never forget reading John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad. I want to encourage uh, you to read this. If you don't have a copy of it, order a copy of this, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's one of those books that won't take you too long to read, okay? Chapter 2 in this book, every chapter is worth the price of the book, but chapter 2 in this book on prayer is worth the price of the book in my opinion. Piper was the one uh, who probably first instilled in me upon reading uh, him and listening to his preaching, Piper was probably the one who instilled in me a theology of the fact that life is war. Life is war. If we forget that, our prayer life will reveal that. If we forget that life is war, our prayers will cease. We must never forget that. Piper says this, he says, The number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hand of a believer is because we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. He's making the argument that for us, we're behind enemy lines. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. It's how we are in communication with the chief commander. It's how we call in support and aid, additional troops. Piper goes on and he says, until you believe that life is war, you will not know what prayer is. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It is as though the field commander, Jesus, called in the troops, gave them a crucial mission. That mission is to go and bear fruit. He handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close to you as this transmitter. To give tactical advice and to send in air cover when you or your comrades need it. But what have millions of Christians done? Perk your ears up here. What have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing that life is war. There is no urgency. There is no watching. There is no vigilance. There is no strategic planning. Just peacetime and prosperity. Easy going. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? Well, they tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and in their boats and in their cars. Not to call in firepower for conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow into the den. It's challenging for me as I think about the content of my prayers so often. Help me be comfortable. Take this away. And those aren't bad prayers. We see those prayers in the Bible. But that must not be the only content of our prayers. And to the degree that we forget that life is war, our prayer life will drift increasingly in that direction. Notice that Paul says we're to pray at all times in the Spirit. 
This isn't a reference to praying in tongues or any other mystical understanding of prayer. Rather, Paul is just acknowledging here the power of prayer and where it comes from. Save the Holy Spirit, be involved in our communion with the Lord. Our praying has no power. So to pray in the Spirit simply means to pray with the Spirit's help or to pray in harmony with His will, to pray guided by His direction. How do we do that, friends? Unless you know this book, unless we're growing in our understanding of this book, God's divinely inspired and errant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word, how will we know what His will is that we might pray it? How will we know what guidance and direction to ask for? Andrew Murray once said, where there is much prayer, there will be much of the Spirit. And where there is much of the Spirit, there will be be ever-increasing prayer. Wise words. Wise words. Believers, we're called to pray continually because our struggle with the powers of darkness are unending this side of eternity. That's why Paul urges us, exhorts us to pray continually. Because we just need to remember that our battle this side of eternity is unending. It's unceasing. There is no ceasefire this side of eternity, but there is coming a day when Jesus Christ will return and there will be a ceasefire. Oh, yes, there will be. Does consistency mark your prayer life, friends? Consistency. Number two on your outline, Paul encourages us to pray diversely. He encourages us first to pray consistently, and then he encourages us to pray Diversely. Diversely. Look at what Paul says. He says that with all prayer and supplication. Pray with all prayer and all supplication. See, when Paul exhorts us to pray with all prayer and supplication, he's not just using redundant nouns here. He's not just repeating himself for the sake of repeating himself here. The use of both of these nouns, prayer and supplication, is very intentional and it's very significant. The first noun, prayer, it's that Greek word prosuke, seen throughout the New Testament. It's oftentimes used by Paul uh, to mean intercession or praying on behalf of another. But it's usually used in much more of a general sense. When you see the word prayer, Paul is using it kind of in the general sense. He's using it in, as, as, a, as meaning intercessory prayer. I'm praying for another in a general sense. We've seen Paul intercede on behalf of the Ephesians a couple times already in this letter. Back in chapter 1, Paul Paul prayed for the Ephesians, beginning in verse 15. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease, there's the language again, to give thanks for you, remembering you in all my prayers, that the God of our Father, the, the, the the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. And he goes on and on and on and says, may he open your eyes, may you be enlightened, enlightened to understand his will and his word. And Paul's already prayed, interceding on behalf of the Ephesians. He does it again in chapter 3. The second noun here, supplication means to make a specific request. Make a specific request. There are many kinds of prayers that we should be familiar with and to know how to effectively use. Have you ever considered that? There are many types of prayers that we are to know, be familiar with, and to be able to employ. Later on in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, I urge that supplications... 
prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. That, that would be some of the variety or the diversity of prayer. Supplications, that's request. Prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. You might be familiar with a particular prayer model. I want to share with you one this morning that may already be familiar to you, but which is just seared on my heart and mind because it's the way that I was taught to pray or the model or the grid uh, that I was taught that's been so helpful for me really since the day that I came to know Christ. And that's the ACTS model of prayer. A-C-T-S, the ACTS model of prayer. The A in that acronym stands for adoration. Adoration. It means to stand in awe of and to worship God. When we come before Him, we should be adoring Him in prayer. Taking time. Before we, before we ask for anything else, just, just sitting before who He is and adoring Him. David gives us this picture in Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. David says, Ascribe to the Lord. Give to the Lord. Give it abundantly. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. When we come before God in prayer, it would be good for us to take a few moments and just recount who God is. This can take the form of praying through a psalm. This can take the form of praying through uh, the names of God even. Can, can take the form of praying through the promises of God because the promises of God in Scripture reveal something to us about the character of God. Can pray through the attributes of God. I mean, just think about this for a moment. Think about your own prayer life. Again, I'm in the crosshairs and this is convicting, but think about your own prayer life for a moment. Do our prayers acknowledge that God is self-existent, that He's self-sufficient, that He is inexhaustibly infinite? That he is the one whose throne that we approach. He's holy, he's eternal, he's immutable, and he's unsearchable. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's unspotted in purity and righteousness. His ways are always just and always true. He's merciful, gracious, and at the same time, he is filled with with a settled indignation towards sin. He's the sovereign creator and sustainer, the owner and the Lord over all. When we approach God in prayer, do we acknowledge those types of things? Do we adore Him for who He is? God is infinitely greater than our best praises and our minds can think and our our mouths can can even put English words together to communicate. When we spend time in adoration, though, our our hearts are filled with awe. But here's the point. I would encourage you to start all your prayers just taking a few minutes in adoration because what that does is it resizes us very quickly and that's a good thing. It reminds us that God is God and we are not. And before we come to Him with our trunk of requests, before we come to Him with all of our wants and wishes and desires and needs, that we would first just humbly bow down and acknowledge who He is. That's the A in the Acts method of prayer, adoration. Adoration. Let me encourage you, friends, to make the glory of God the highest aim of your prayers. Make the glory of God the highest aim of your prayers. What about the C? It stands for confession. It's the C in the Acts method. Confession. The word confess simply means to agree with, 
We agree with God when we confess our sins. He already knows them. We're not telling him anything he didn't know. We're not telling him we stepped over the line, that we trespassed, that we violated his will and his revealed word. We're simply agreeing with what he already knows to be true and what he knows to be infallibly true. He knows more of our sin than we could ever know. To confess is just to acknowledge, God, you're right and I've been wrong. I've transgressed your law in what I've said and what I've thought and what I've done. And we have this great promise when we confess our sins, do we not? That he forgives us and restores fellowship with himself. David said, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a promise. What a promise. No other worldview out there that preaches a message like that. It's do these things to appease your God. Try to please your God. Jump through these hoops. And in the end, we'll see if you've jumped through enough. But our God has pardoned us based on the shed blood of his son. We're not hoop jumping. We simply want to be like him. And we want to honor him as he is. How about the T in the Acts method? Thanksgiving. Adoration. Confession. T is thanksgiving. Paul said this in Philippians 4, 6. He said, do not be anxious about anything. O me or O my. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. There's the two nouns again. And he goes on and he says, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Thanksgiving. And you might be wondering to yourself here, well, what's the difference between adoration and thanksgiving? What's the difference between adoration and thanksgiving? And I say, that's a great question. Glad you asked. It might be helpful to to distinguish between the two by understanding adoration as focusing on who God is and thanksgiving as focusing on what God has done. Might be a helpful distinction there for you. What's the difference between adoration and thanksgiving in our prayers? Well, adoration focuses on who God is, his nature, his character, his attributes. Thanksgiving focuses on what he has done and is doing in the world in my life, in the church, in the spread of the gospel, and we could go on and on and on. David said this in Psalm 9. He said, I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I'll recount all your wonderful deeds. How much of our prayer life looks like that? I'll recount all your wonderful deeds. I'll be glad and I'll exult in you. There's adoration. I'll sing praise to your name, O most high God. I would encourage you at some point in the near future maybe to grab a concordance. If you don't have a a bound version of a concordance, you can get online and you can access one for free. But I would encourage you to look up every single instance in the Bible of the word thanks, thanksgiving, thankful, etc. And take note of it. Maybe print it out uh, and use those as, as a way to look into the word and And look at the things that those biblical authors recounted that they were thankful for and use that as a way to be thankful for the same things. It's a challenge. Let me know if you take me up on it. Here are a few things that we can be thankful for. Salvation, forgiveness of sin, the indwelling Holy Spirit, God's unconditional love for us in Christ, freedom from the bondage of sin, God's presence, God's peace, God's protection, the hope of heaven, your marriage, your singleness, your family, your children, or your spiritual children, your friendships, 
A copy of the Bible in your own language, friends. Don't take that for granted. Your church, good teaching, a plethora of good Bible resources that we have access to, your ministry, your giftedness, your fruitfulness in Christ, your growth and godliness, and then we get down to the challenging things. What about your difficulties? What about your trials? What about your dark days? Are you thankful for those as well? Because they produce in you perseverance and hope and character? Because they make you look more like Jesus Christ? Be thankful for your difficulties, your trials, your losses, and a Savior who will one day make all things new and wipe away every single tear. Be thankful. And lastly, S, supplication. That's our requests. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That is just a model, and it's not the only way to pray. It's not a more holy way to pray. It's just a good way to approach God, acknowledging who He is, what He's done, before I come to Him with my heap of requests and my lists. Supplication just means request. We're called to bring our request before God. To do so acknowledges that God is the all-sufficient benefactor and that we are the all-needy beneficiaries. We should note that our prayer life will be poor if requesting of God is all that we do, but at the same time, it will be less than it could be if we do not bring our request and lay them before him. A helpful principle to keep in mind here as we bring our supplications or we bring our request before God is that which is found in 1 John 1.9. Write that out in the margin. 1 John 1.9. Paul writes, this is the confidence we have toward him, or this is the confidence we have in approaching him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know that we have that which we've asked of him. Now, there's a key phrase in that verse. And that key phrase is this, if we ask according to his will, how do you know God's will? You must know God's word. God has revealed his will in his word. And and if God tells us, this is the confidence we have in approaching him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, then we know definitively that we have that which we've asked of him then we would do well to know God's will as it is revealed in his word. Does that mean that that we can uh, pray for uh, a, a brand new car and God is obligated? Absolutely not. But we know that when we pray those things that are God's will, that he hears us. So you know when you pray, God, will you make me more like your son? Well, you can take that one to the bank, friends. When, when, When you pray, Lord, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Raise up laborers in the harvest field. You can take that one to the bank. It's as good as gold. A great application here is pray scripture. Get in the habit of praying scripture. I want to be careful here. But hear hear me out. This this, this is not a... uh, This is not a condemnation in any way. But you can tell when someone prays if they read their Bible. You can tell by listening to the way someone prays. And I don't, what, what I don't want to do here is make you all self-conscious about the way you pray or to make you morbidly introspective about the way you pray so that you don't pray at all. Don't do that. That would be a wrong application here. But having said that, those who spend much time in God's Word have tongues that reveal much of God's word, right? 
because we've hidden it in our heart and in our mind. You can tell a lot about a person's time in the Bible by listening to the way they pray. That's not an encouragement not to pray. It's an encouragement to spend time with God's Word. Number three on your outline is this. Pray attentively. Pray attentively. Look, Paul says, to that end, keep alert. To that end, keep alert. Paul encourages us to pray vigilantly, with eyes wide open. The word alert there means to be sleepless, watchful, vigilant, attentive. You know, the exhortation to watch and pray, that wasn't given by Jesus without reason. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the the flesh is weak. Therefore, watch and pray. Paul wants us to be on guard. He wants us to be ready so that we don't fall into spiritual sleep and spiritual complacency. Are we praying attentively? Do we have our eyes open? Or have we become spiritually lethargic? I think Paul's calling us to keep alert here so that we might not be caught by temptation. That would seem to fit the context, right, of spiritual warfare, so that we might not be caught in temptation. But I think Paul is also calling us to be alert as to just what's going on in the world around us so that we can pray accordingly. Those who are not alert but listless and indifferent to what's going on in their homes, in the streets of their city, in their state, in their country, in their, in their church, and in the world at large, they'll have a very restricted prayer life. Are you keeping your eyes open as to what's going on in the world that you live in? So that, first of all, you would not fall to temptation, but also so that you would know how to pray accordingly. Do you know how to pray for the world? Do you know how to pray for the specific issues and needs of of our city and of our church? Number four, pray persistently. Pray persistently. Paul says, with all perseverance. By the way, have you noticed the use of the four alls in the text here? I mean, Paul is doing that with great intentionality. He says, be praying at all times in the Spirit. Pray with all prayer and supplication. Pray with all perseverance and pray for all the saints. And Paul's not just trying to be wordy here. Paul is using language for the sake of emphasis. And he tells us to pray with all perseverance. Pray persistently. The word perseverance, it means to keep on. Oftentimes in emails, I'll I'll give a salutation, keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. We're called to pray and to stick it out. Friends, prayer isn't easy. If it were, more Christians would be doing it. It's not easy. You know that. I mean, how how often do you you bow your head or or go on a prayer walk or however you're exercising the the, the mode of prayer and, and find that it's not too long after that, that your mind is somewhere out in left field. Prayer is difficult. Persisting in prayer is difficult. We must discipline ourselves. It's one of the reasons that I would encourage you, if you don't, 
to have a prayer journal and write down specific prayer requests so that when you come to your prayer time, when you come to that time in your devotional life, we're to, we're to always be on the line, right? But when you come to that moment of, of auditory prayer, you have a guide. And not that you have to be rigid with it, but that it helps you keep focused, that it helps you be persistent in prayer, to keep on keeping on. Martin Luther once said, I have so much to do today, and I'm in so much need that I must spend three hours in prayer in order to get it all done. Well, we think the opposite, right? We think I have so much to do, so I'll cut my prayer time short to get it all done. Luther says, no, I've got so much to do that I must carve out three hours so that I can get it all done. It's a different perspective, is it not? Not all of us can spend hours upon hours upon hours in intercessory prayer, but all of us can persevere in prayer more than we do. We must learn to see prayer as the most powerful and efficient use of our time. You know the old saying, squeaky wheel gets the grease? It's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not saying persistence means that God will hear you necessarily, though we do see in the Gospels the one who comes knocking day after day after day after day. We're not trying to to gain God's attention with our prayers. God doesn't answer our prayers, a meritorious work, meaning that when our prayers are enough, then he answers. Rather, he encourages us to pray with persistence and perseverance to remind us that he alone is the one who must act. Number five on your outline. And finally, pray for the family. Pray for the family. And I would have had a sixth point if it would have fit on your outline, so let me give it to you. Right out to the right somewhere, write, pray evangelistically. Pray evangelistically. We'll see that here in verses 18 through 20. Look at your Bible beginning in verse 18 through the rest of the text here, through verse 20, Paul says this, making supplication for all the saints, that's the family, and also for me, that's the family. And then Paul switches gears here, and he encourages us to pray evangelistically. He says that words may be given to me in opening my mouth, that I may boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, making supplication for all the saints. Friends, we we obviously cannot pray for all Christians by name, but we can pray generally for all believers everywhere, and we can pray specifically for those Christians that we do know. Generally speaking, so for those Christians who we don't know around the world, we can can pray general prayers. Things like, we can pray for suffering Christians. We can pray uh, for Christians in positions of power. We can pray for isolated Christians. We can pray for Christians of differing ethnic backgrounds. We can pray for persecuted Christians. And we ought to, we're commanded to in Scripture. We can pray those types of general prayers for Christians that we do not know personally. But if we're going to pray specifically for the saints, we must know something about them. And uh, friends, let me encourage you, if you don't have a copy of this resource right here, it's not quite as short as some of the others, but it's worth its weight in gold. It's called Operation World. Almost every country in the world is listed in this book and how you can specifically pray for what God is doing there, how you can pray for Christians, how you can pray for the advancement of the gospel. Get you a copy of Operation World. 
and use it as a prayer guide. Incorporate this into your prayer life. This will help you pray specifically for all the saints, as Paul tells us to do here. And then pray evangelistically. Look here, and and there's a whole sermon here in verses 18 through 20. There's multiple sermons here, but we're going to land the plane. Pray evangelistically. After having asked for prayer for all the saints, Paul now asks that he too be remembered in a special way. And note this. Look back at your Bible for a moment. Note that of all the things that Paul could have asked the believers at Ephesus to pray for him, he asked that they might pray for the right words to be given to him, words that might pierce the hearts of the hearers, and for gospel boldness. I mean, Paul didn't ask the church to pray that his ankles, probably raw from from sores that his shackles caused, might be healed. He didn't even pray that he would be freed from prison and freed from his suffering. More than anything else, Paul wanted the strength and the boldness to be an effective witness for Christ. And so what Paul asked for here, essentially, is that his friends, the church there at Ephesus, would pray for the advancement of the gospel, that God might grant him, Paul, the effective use of the sword of the Spirit. That's what Paul asks for. That's what Paul requests here. You know, I'm convicted oftentimes. We, we spend a lot of time, and, and we should be praying for these types of needs, but we spend a lot of time praying to keep sick Christians out of heaven more so than we pray to keep lost sinners out of hell. We spend more time oftentimes praying to keep sick Christians out of glory than we do praying that God would convert lost sinners and keep them from hell. Paul asked that he'd have boldness. I mean, think about it here. Paul wrote two-thirds of the collective New Testament, and yet he struggled with fear. So do we. Paul asked for boldness that he might declare the gospel as he ought to. Let me do this. Let me give you just five snippets here. We're out of time. Five things, and there are more, that will keep you from praying. We're going to go one, two, three, four, five. You ready? These are on your outline. These are extra free of charge. Here we go. Number one, this will keep you from praying as you ought. Lack of intimacy with God. Input equals output. Lack of intimacy with God will keep you, will hinder you from praying as you ought. Number two, lack of a plan will keep you from praying as you ought. For many of us, it's not that we don't want to have a fruitful, vibrant, communicative prayer life. It's that we simply don't plan to do so. Number three, lies. Lies will keep you from an effective, fruitful prayer life. Here's what I mean. The the lie, and Satan would love to, to, to toss this at you, that effective prayer lives are only for that elite subclass of Christians of which you are not. That's a lie from the pit of hell, friends. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If you know Jesus Christ savingly, his righteousness has been imputed to your account, you are the righteous man. Number four, discouragement. Just a sense of unworthiness as a result of your sin. That'll keep you from approaching the throne of grace with confidence. Keep short accounts. Confess your sin to God. And then lastly, pride. We just simply think that we can handle it all on our own. And we don't need any help. Lack of intimacy with God, lack of a prayer, lies, discouragement, and pride. 